Let's open our Bibles this morning to um, Acts chapter 14 as we continue to make our way through God's word. Uh, Paul read our two verses. I will read them and then we'll come back to verse 1. Acts 14, verses 19 and 20. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered gathered around him, he rose up, went out into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Um, Acts chapters 13 and 14 records Paul's first missionary journey. A little background. In chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas faced the most impenetrable um, difficulty in Galatia. The Galatian field was the hardest missionary field that Paul ever entered. You need only to read the epistle to the Galatians to discover that Galatians were the harshest epistle that Paul wrote. He wrote it to a group of people who had a spiritual bent in the wrong direction. They were constantly going off the track. He visited those churches more than any others. Let me give you this brief background of the Galatian country, which Paul is entering on his first missionary journey. The people of whom the province was named were Gallus, a Celtic tribe from the same stock which inhabited France. In the 4th century BC, they invaded the Roman Empire and sacked Rome. Later, they crossed into Greece and captured Delphi in 280 um, BC uh, at the invitation of Nicomedes I, king of Bithynia. They crossed over into Asia Minor to help, to help him win a civil war. They were a warlike people who soon established themselves in Asia Minor. In 189 BC, they were subject, subjects of the Roman Empire and became a province. Their boundaries varied, and for many years they retained their custom and language. The churches which Paul established on his first missionary journey were included at one time in the territory of Galatia. So this is a name which Paul would normally give to these churches. What I'd like to put up on the screen we had on Wednesday night is actually a map of Paul's first missionary journey. And we are going to um, uh, leave that up because I'm going to be referring to it uh, throughout the study this morning. So let's look at verse 1. Well, let's go back to uh, 13 in Iconium of chapter 13, verse 51. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, chapter 14. And it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. So number seven up there is, I believe, yeah, Iconium. And uh, this is the setting for this chapter. If you were here Wednesday night, it was the first part of Paul's missionary journey. If you're following on the map, you'll notice that they crossed over the length of the island of Cyprus. They sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. Uh, Then they traveled up into the country of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. These are the cities of Galatia. So they are now in the heartland of Asia Minor. In verses two through seven, it says, but the believing Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brethren. A little sidetrack here. Um, They heard the gospel. 
They, be, they believed the gospel, and they believed the gospel. Now, remember the parable of the sower and the seed. And um, the Lord explains what happens when the word of God is preached. And some fell on stony ground, some on thorny ground, and um, uh, some fell on good ground, produced uh, a good crop. But the first one uh, that fell on the stony ground, it didn't have any root because Jesus goes on to explain that a bird came and ate that seed and took it out lest they should believe and be saved. So here was a group of people, according to the sower and a seed, that heard it, believed it, and then Jesus tells us that the bird is actually the devil or one of his cohorts and comes and steals the seed lest they should believe and be saved. So this first group received it, believed it, but had it stolen away. I see the same thing happening right here. They came, they received it, um, they believed, Jews and Greeks believed, verse one, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brethren. Don't know how they did it. Uh, you call yourself Jews, how could you be a Jew and be a follower of uh, the sect? And who knows? Uh, therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and to stone them. So again, I can't say enough, uh, real spiritual warfare really begins when you hear the gospel. There is a war that will take place of you accepting it or rejecting it. And the determining factor of uh, being able to make it through is, this is Christianese right now, is that you get rooted and grounded. You get some spiritual meat on your bones so that you can't come along and somebody says, well, that's not true or whatever, but you know the word well enough, you go, no, I know what the word says about this, and um, I'm not being moved. So you, you got some root, some depth, in other words, to your walk with the Lord. All the more reason to be serious Bible students, and especially the topic that I'm gonna touch on this morning, that... Um, that we'll eventually make our way into. So the first five verses here, um, they're getting ready to uh, stone Barnabas and Paul. And then, because they didn't, um, uh, because they didn't get a very good reception in Iconium, they fled to Lystra and Derby. However, we know that they came back through Iconium, uh, so there must have been some believers there. Now let's read um, 6 through uh, 13, I guess, or 10 for now. They became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there, and in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb. So this guy had never walked. Who had never walked. I just said that. <laughs> the man heard Paul speaking, and Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up on your feet. And he leaped and walked. So now we have a miracle uh, that's taking place. If you look at the map again, um, fled to the regions of Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, which was the region. And they have this miracle. And 
when the miracle had taken place and this man is healed, the reaction of the people that saw it, because they knew this guy was a cripple from birth, and now he's leaping. We read in verses 11 through 13, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermas, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garland to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. They were going to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. And um, as a result of this in 14 now through 18, Paul has to put them in their place and let them know, hey, listen, we aren't any different than you. It's like in James where it's talking about Elijah who prayed that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years and it didn't. But then he goes on to say that um, your prayers aren't any different than Paul. Paul's an ordinary guy. And he prayed as an ordinary man, natural man, and it didn't rain for the space of three and a half years. Well, same situation here. They're giving all the glory to Paul and Barnabas. Verse 14. And when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes, ran in among the multitudes, crying out, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these vain things. Get away from Zeus. Get away from uh, these false gods that you're worshiping. They're nothing. They're stone. They can't do anything. Um, And turn to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. I watched a program last night, I don't know, it's a National Geographic or whatever, uh, and it just showed the ocean and all the the wonders and the marvels. And you can't think of a creature in your mind. Just make up a creature in your mind, and I'll guarantee you there's one out there that God has already come up with. And then I watched a two-hour program just on Yellowstone National Park and the wonders and, and the glory of, um, of his creation. And um, that's what he said here the God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all the things that are in him. He's the only one who deserves the worship and the praise. Who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witnesses in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. The more they talked, the more they wanted to worship them. So what happened next is we have a space and we have the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, oh, the fickleness of men, persuading the multitudes that they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Did you catch that? They killed Paul. And the word suppose there, I leave out. And I'll tell you why in just a little bit. Because I believe Paul was killed here. And um, however, the disciples gathered around him, rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby, and you can see that up on the map. The reason I believe that Paul was actually stoned to death is because he says so himself. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the time frame when he talks about, and I knew a man about 14 years ago, fits the time frame. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12 And I'm going to read verses 1 
through 10. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast, okay? And that's what the people were doing. They were boasting on Paul. But now I'm gonna come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or whether out of the body, I don't know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to utter. Well, what always struck me here is I thought if I ever saw heaven, I would probably want to comment on the things that I saw. But he does mention that. He comments on the things that he heard. And all I can say about that is I find that extremely interesting. Of such a one I will boast, okay? Now we know it's Paul when I come to dreams and revelations. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I forbear lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. You know that Paul considered himself the chiefest of sinners? The longer he walked with the Lord, the more aware he became of his sinful condition. And as he's given account of all the things that he went through and the sufferings, um, uh, he says, guys, I don't want you to think I'm any more than what I am. I'm no different, just like Elijah Now, to keep him in that place of having a big head, we go on to read, because now we've just visited um, the third heaven, um, and um, that's all the information it gives us here, but it's heaven, and he's there. But lest he would boast about it, in verse 7 through 10, unless I would be exalted above measure because of the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. We don't know what it was. Some say it was his eyesight. Some others um, could only speculate. Whatever it was, Paul wanted it gone. And it was a messenger of Satan, so now we know it was a demon. So now we got a demon who's hassling Paul so that he doesn't get a big head. A messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I be exalted above measure. So whatever this thing is, is hassling Paul all the time uh, to keep him in a humble place. And I, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Lord, I don't like this. Get this critter out of here. Out. No answer. So he prayed again. Still no answer. So he prays three times. This time the Lord answers him in verse nine. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Can I get an amen on that one? This is an important lesson to learn, my friends that when you're weak, the, the Lord is strong. And if for by any chance the Lord does use you in a supernatural way, make sure you give the glory to him. You can, you can be gracious and say thank you very much. But in the back of your head, you better be saying, Lord, all glory and praise and honor go to you. <laughs> Another good place for an amen. Um. Then he says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. I would like to say I could say that. (laughs) I can't say that. I do not take pleasure in my infirmities, okay? Period. (laughs) 
and in reproach, in needs, and persecution, and distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, we're going to do a major sidetrack this morning as we make our way through. And one of the reasons is because I believe uh, the hour is very late. And what's clearly pointed out in the verses that we read is that there is a heaven. Paul saw it, spoke about it. It also tells us that there are demons and that there's a devil. And uh, so now we have the flip side of the coin. We have heaven and angels, angelic, and then we have demons and the head of them, Lucifer. When Paul died, I believe he had a life after death experience that happened back in Acts chapter 14. And the Lord brought him back into his body. Remember the disciples gathered around him? He was down for a while. And it says that he just got back up. If I'm him, I'm saying, boys, it's time to move on. What does he do? He goes back into the same town. Well, he leaves, but the fact that he went back in is I'm, I'm impressed with. Now, in order to go to heaven, he must be saved. Somebody want to give me an amen or not? And Paul went to heaven, which means Paul is saved. Look forward to meeting Paul someday. And so it raises a question, most important question you'll ever have to answer, is not only are you saved, but how does one become saved? Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 16. Question, how is one saved and is assured that when he dies, like Paul, he goes to heaven? Well, Paul and Silas had just gotten beaten up. They were thrown in prison again. And in verse 25 of Acts 16, we read, um, they were all beaten up, stripes, I probably would have been complaining and Lord, I'm serving you and here all you get beat up and thrown in prison. Not Paul and Silas. They're singing, I wanna praise you, Lord. They're singing praise songs. And the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prisons were shaken Immediately the doors were opened and everyone's hands bands, the chains, were loosed. And the keeper of the prison walked out, woke, awoke out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, drew his sword and would have killed himself supposing that the prisoners had just fled. Well, didn't we just talk about that? When um, um, Paul escaped or, 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 or they were praying for Peter and the, um, the guards that let him get away they got killed if you were a guard and your prisoner escaped you were the one that died so this is exactly what this guy's ready to do my prisoners are gone takes out his sword supposing the prisoners had left verse 28 but Paul cried out with a loud voice saying do thyself no harm for we're still here Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? You can't be any more direct than that. And here's the answer. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. It doesn't say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and do a lot of good works. It doesn't say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. It doesn't say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and never sin again. No. It just says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved. Let me clarify here. The probability factors of parents who raise their children 
in the ways of the Lord their whole life. The probability of them, uh, it says when they're older, they will not depart from it. I want to make it clear, just because the parents are safe here, it doesn't mean the kids are. The kids have to make their own decision. But if they're brought up in the ways of the Lord, it says they won't depart from it when they're older. So just a simple exhortation for those of you who are raising your kids, especially today, where the most dangerous thing you could probably do is send them to the public school system. And um, homeschoolers, I encourage you to um, uh, undo what our colleges and universities and, and public school systems are are doing and teaching your children. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, period. And they spoke unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in the house. And he took them that same hour of the night, washed their stripes, this is the, the, the guard, and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he gave them meat before them and rejoiced believing in God with all of his house. They had a party. They had a great big meal. They had the supper. Question, how can one get saved? Simply by believing the gospel when you hear it. And when you hear it, you're held accountable for it. Well, what about those who have never heard it before? Boy, am I glad I'm not God. What do you do with that one? Answer, I don't know. I know to whom much is given, much is required. And I know to whom little is given, little is required. I figured the Lord's got that one figured out, and he'll take care of that. And I know at at, uh, the judgments, the angels say, holy and just and true, are your judgments, O Lord. So, now, if there's the angelic realm, and that's how you get saved to go to heaven, what does the Bible have to say about hell? And a greater question is, why is there a hell in the first place? I'm gonna have you turn with me. I could just quote these scriptures to you, but I want you to see for yourself from the word of God what the scriptures tell us about this place called hell. Turn with me to Matthew 25. Gives us scriptures of the judgments of of the nations where he's separating the sheep from the goats. So this would be after the tribulation period. Of course, there will be those who took the mark of the beast and those who did not. There were those who believed on Christ that were willing to die for it, and there were those who weren't. So in verse 41, the ones that took the mark of the beast and worshiped the Antichrist, verse 41 says, then he said to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This verse is important because it tells us why God created hell in the first place. When Lucifer persuaded one-third of the angelic realm to rebel with him, an angel is an eternal being. They live forever. And they're not gonna live forever in heaven. So the reason we're told here, there's a group of people that are gonna be joining them, but it gives us a reason. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. Go down to verse 46, and it says, and these will go into, the word you wanna underline here is everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Turn with me to, Matthew chapter 13, um, verse 24 is really the parable of the wheat and the tares that I want to take some time and go 
through it. Wheat and tares, they look pretty much the same. Verse 24, another parable he set forth to them, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while he slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And when the grain had sprouted and produced a a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How come it has tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. Let me explain what's going on a little bit. We have the true gospel, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good place for an amen. And then we have a lot of isms, okay? Um, Anything from Buddhism to um, reincarnation. um, Oh, the list goes on and on and on. Mormonism. um, All the other tares, or, or in other words, anything other than the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Um. It says, and he said, an enemy has done this. These other seeds are other doctrines. Do you want us then to gather them up? And he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together till the harvest, and at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first reap together the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, the disciples, wanting to know what he was talking about, um, asked for him to explain it, and that's in verses 30. uh, We can pick it up at verse 33, I guess. No, that's 36, I should say. The parable of the tares explained. Then Jesus sent the multitudes away and went into his house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of God, son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom or those who believe the gospel. And the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. Just a sidetrack here. Are we saying lawlessness in our land today like never before and they will cast them into the furnace of fire there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth I just want you to we, we can read it in black and white that's one thing it's another thing to have a person right here that you can see that it's experiencing I'm going to do the best I can to show you that this morning rather than just quickly reading over a sentence that says, oh, they were weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Everybody want to check? Just make sure it's there. No, I'm not Carol Burnett. (laughs) Me and my wife have our, I better not go there. (laughs) Let's just say she's a big fan and I'm not as. All right, with that being said, let's go down now to verse 47 through 50. The parable of the dragnet. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore, they sat down, gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it was at the end of the age that the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from the just, 
and casts them into the furnace of fire, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And um, uh, the agony cannot be put into words. Um, The fact that the word everlasting is important as we read through this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, just a couple pages before. Verses 11 and 12 read, And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we have it recorded for us again there. If you're taking notes, I'll just quote this one. I'll be coming to Jude a little bit later, but in verse six of Jude. And the angels which did not keep their first estate. Okay, so these are obviously those who rebelled with Lucifer. But left their own habitation, which was heaven. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness until the judgment of that great day. Hell. Tough subject to talk about. The percentages out there today that I've done a lot of research on it, if you ask a person if they're going to heaven or hell, 90% of the people say they're going to heaven. And 4% say they're going to hell. That's a Gallup poll. There's um, a doctor, a cardiologist, his name is... Dr. Maurice Rollins is an MD, atheist, was, cardiologist and professor of medicine at the University of Tennessee College of Medicine in Chattanooga, was a devout atheist. He considered all religion hocus pocus. To him, death, death was nothing more than you're here now, and that's the end of it, period. How many of you know people that think like that? But in 1977, Rollins, being a cardiologist, was resuscitating a man who came back from the edge of death. The man was terrified, screaming, Rollins wrote. Every time he regained consciousness um, and came back, he was saying, I'm in hell and I'm terrified. And he pleaded with me and I was scared to death. Then I noticed a genuine alarm look on his face. He had a terrible look worse than the expression seen in death. This patient, grotesque Grimp's expression, sheer horror. His pupils were dilated. He was perspiring and trembling. And it looked as if the hair was on end. There are many stories of near-death experiences in which people report moving down a peaceful tunnel toward a gentle light. But Dr. uh, Rawlings' research, which appeared in Omni Magazine, demonstrated that about 50% of near-death victims report seeing lakes of fire, devil-like features, other sights reflecting the darkness of hell. Just listening to these paces has changed my whole life, claims Dr. Rawlings. There is life after death. And I don't know where I'm going, and I don't know where I'm going if it's not safe to die. Through these experiences, Dr. Rawlings began studying the Bible, had to say about hell, and other subjects, he became a Christian. And two of his books are Beyond Death's Door and To Hell and Back. That's his experience. Now, if you had a very wonderful life after death experience, you can stay alive for about four minutes before um, your body sets into metamor- uh, um, what do you call it? Not metamor- yeah. 
where you stiff it all up. You know what I mean? And um, you see, this is what I think happened to Paul. Uh, he was there just long enough. He had a life after death experience. He saw heaven, came back, and told all about it. Well, you don't hear too many people, people that might have had the same experience, go to hell and then still want to talk about it. I don't think they would. I think they'd uh, try to put it as far away from them as possible. And um, let me quote C.S. Lewis here. There's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this one, hell, if it lay in my power. But it has a full support of scripture and especially of our Lord's own words, it has always been held by Christians and has the full support of scripture, C.S. Lewis. People don't like to hear about hell. Goes on to say, I'm quoting Lewis again, Lewis once went to hear a young person deliver a sermon. Very much earnest, The young man ended his message like this. And now, my friends, if you do not believe these truths, there may be for you grave eschatological consequences. Lewis later visited the young minister and asked him, did you mean to say that they would be in danger of hell? And he said, why, yes. And he says, then why in the world didn't you say so? Eschatological consequences is a lot different than gnashing of teeth and torment forever and ever and ever. Now, I can talk about it from the pulpit. You can read it. Um, But I went online and um, I wanted to get somebody's testimony that I felt was credible that I could show to you this morning because I want this to rattle some cages this morning, and I'll explain why later. So at this time, I have a short video clip of a person that was killed uh, by accident uh, entering a store, and he tells his story, and I'm gonna play it for you right now. Hi guys, be blessed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today I wanna show you the testimony of Matt Botsford about his near-death experience, as it is a very authentic and significant testimony. This video is, so to speak, a decoupling of a longer video that deals with near-death experiences in general. I show you the link to the video here and I really recommend watching this video too, because it contains important information about how to assess a near-death experience. That is, what it means when a person sees either light or darkness in his near-death experience. Because a positive near-death experience with feelings of peace, joy and love does not mean that the experiences after the final death must be positive as well, as shown in the video. We talk about a near-death experience when a person dies and then comes back to life. People then report that they have left their own body and were able to see their body from the outside. Also they report on various events that can roughly be divided into two categories. One group sees bright light and some also see a tunnel with light at the end. Some also walk through the tunnel and see deceased relatives at the other end. Sometimes they see dead friends or angelic beings who tell them that they have to go back to earth because it is not yet their time. The other group sees no light but darkness and in part also fire and terrible creatures. Some feel enormous heat. The experiences of the first category are related to well-being, feelings of love, peace and joy. Those of the second category with the exact opposite, namely feelings of fear, loneliness and agony. So let's come then to Matthew Botsford's testimony and what he experienced during his death. Matthew is in the second group of those who have had a negative near-death experience because he saw darkness and he saw fire and experienced agony. 
What he saw during death is what he describes as hell, and what he experienced was unimaginable horror. This is a summary of his testimony as given in various interviews. In this picture here, this is Matthew and his wife. He also wrote a book about his near-death experience. It is entitled A Day in Hell. Before his near-death experience, Matthew was a kind of atheist, as many are today. He had a nebulous notion of God, a higher power, so to speak, no real faith, and he didn't care about what God may expect of him. Rather, he was solely concerned with his own things, things that he enjoyed. But then it happened. In 1992, Matt died as a result of a gunshot wound in the head, and he was reanimated again later. The bullet struck him as he and his two friends left the restaurant, just as some people fired weapons at the restaurant's entrance. The attackers had recently been expelled from the restaurant and didn't want to stand for it. So they went to their car, got some weapons and opened the fire on the restaurant a short time later. Matthew died on the spot. After being dead for several minutes, paramedics could revive him. Matthew has almost no memory of the crime, but he remembers all the more exactly the events that he experienced while he was dead. Matthew described these experiences later in interviews after a long time of recovery. He said, I felt a strong heat in my head and then everything went black. The next thing I saw was that I was crucified, hanging over a deep abyss. I could not free myself. The crucifixion was a direct mocking of what Jesus did for us. I saw smoke rising up from the abyss above which I was hanging, and I heard all these terrible screams. I want to tell everybody that hell is real. What I experienced was absolutely real. I knew I was completely alone and isolated. There is nothing comparable to what I experienced there. One is completely powerless and it is a state of upper hopelessness. I was surrounded by the pure evil. It was like getting into a liquid bath of pure evil. Evil surrounds you completely and there is no way out. As I looked down into the abyss, I saw the magma boiling beneath my feet and the smoke rising up to me and I saw four-legged creatures running around. It was extremely hot, and there were demonic creatures all around me. They looked terrible. It was very dark, pitch black. Only by the glow of the magma could I see something. I was completely naked. The lava flowed together under me until my feet got covered by it. I saw my feet burn in the lava, and I could smell the scorched smell. The agony was unbearable. But after my feet were burned and gone, they were restored suddenly, and the torment started over again. It's a never-ending cycle of torture and torment. I didn't know the name of Jesus and never prayed, therefore I didn't call the name of the Lord. Suddenly I saw a group of these terrible creatures approaching me. At first I only saw eyes, and I heard them mocking me. They knew things of mine that I had done, such as watch unclean videos. Then they began to eat me alive. They had very long claws. They ripped the meat off my bones and ate it. The pain was unbearable, but I did not die. After a short while, the flesh was back on my body, and they started over to eat the flesh from my bones again. It was an unimaginable horror. No, I screamed just like the other people, and I could not stand it. In all this time in hell, which seemed eternal to me, I had neither thoughts about my past nor about the future. The only thing I knew was that I was out of time, and that existence in this horror is forever and ever. I suddenly realized that I was trapped in eternal torment and torture, and I could not escape from it. I was paralyzed with fear. I didn't even wonder why I was there. Then suddenly I saw a hand reaching into the darkness from the outside, as if a hand were reaching through a curtain. The hand was huge and moved in my direction. Something in me told me that this was a good thing. And then I heard a voice. I've never heard such a voice before. It sounded like thunder, lightning, rushing huge water, all in one. I heard that voice speak. It is not your time. At that moment, I left the awful place, and all evil was gone. My sense of being trapped and tortured forever was gone.
It was the hand and voice of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who saved me from this terrible place. I woke up in a hospital room and saw my brother and wife. But what I saw was absolutely real. When we die, there are only two possible places for us to spend eternity, heaven or hell. I have experienced hell, and I want to warn everyone, don't go there. This place is not made for man. Do everything possible to avoid this place. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior from eternal damnation and hellfire. God bless you. Um, there's a reason that um, I wanted to make this more graphic. Because like I said earlier, we can read over um, the words of gnashing of teeth and so on and so forth. But um, here's one man's experience. I personally believe this one is credible. I also will acknowledge there's some that are not. But this place where um, he is is going to be emptied someday into a place called the Great White Throne Judgment, which I'm going to have you turn to next, Revelation chapter 20. Sheol, hell, Hades, that's one place. That's where people who don't know the Lord, maybe some of them are thinking, I've never had my day in court, I've never had a chance to say my side of the story. Revelation chapter 20, verses one through three, tells us, I saw thrones, and they that sat on the thrones, and judgment was committed to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and the word of God, who had not worshipped the image of the beast and had not received the mark of his forehead on his hand. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And then we go to verse 11, where we read, Then I saw the great white throne, and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. There, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Notice, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. In other words, if there was ever the thought of, I've never had the chance to tell my side of the story and explain whatever. I was just, I died and here I was. Well, this place called hell, it says death and hell are emptied now and brought before the great white throne judgment. And um, individuals, one-on-one, are going to stand before God. And when it says the books were opened and they were judged according to their works, what does that mean? That means that everything, every sin you ever committed, every thought you ever thought, every lie you ever told, everything you ever stole, it's all written down. And that is what's going to you have to make a decision after you see you want your day in court. Well, you got it. Here's your life. In men's prayer yesterday, I mentioned to the guys that I was going to do this. And one of them said, um, as we're going around the table, Dwight, I got saved because of a track called, a chick track called This Was Your Life. And it's about what happens to you if you die in your sins and go to hell. He says, I got saved reading about hell. And these verses here, let's finish it off, they were judged by their works, by the things which were in their works. Then the, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades, now Hades is what we were just looking at here, was delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged according to their works. How I thank the Lord I'm not judged according to my works. How I am so grateful that it is by grace and grace alone and faith that I am saved. Amen? 
And so that produces an attitude of gratitude. The only way that I truly believe a person can fulfill the greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. Well, I got something to be loving him for. Especially when I read the consequences. What's going to happen? I don't want to believe this any more than than C.S. Lewis wants to. If I could get rid of this, fine. But I can't. Now we read, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I can't think of anything more terrible. It's also called outer darkness. To be with yourself, with your own thoughts, for all eternity, in that torment. I can't think of anything worse than that. Compared to, the Lord says, those who are in heaven, there are pleasures at my right hand forevermore. We're temporal. We are just passing through. Turn with me to the book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. And you say, Dwight, that's pretty heavy. I thought it was the goodness of the Lord that leads a man to repentance. God's not willing that any should perish. Good place for an amen? Okay, so let's say you hear the goodness of the Lord. And you say, nope, don't want to. John 3 tells us why people reject the gospel. It says because they love the darkness more than the light. In other words, they didn't want to give up their sins. It's that simple. So, if you can't, if the love of God doesn't woo you to accept Jesus, there's an alternative. And we find it in Jude picking it up on witnessing in verse 22. It says, on some have compassion, making a distinction. In other words, be tactful on how to bring them to Christ. Explaining the love of God, have some tact, use some discretion. But then it says, but verse 23, but with others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments defiled by the flesh. I listened to Charles Spurgeon's Bible study, of course by another man for over an hour. Um, they used to, used to call him fire and brimstone messages. This verse right here says if they don't respond to the love of Christ, then scare the hell out of them. And you can't do that unless you give an accurate biblical description of what hell really is. As I wind this up uh, this morning, I would like to uh, have you turn uh, to Luke chapter 16. I've been saving this for last. Luke chapter 16. I think most of us here would agree that the hour is late and uh, that the Lord really could come at any time. Parable of the rich man and Lazarus is not a parable. Parables, if you're true to uh, biblical interpretation, cannot have a proper name in it. So I believe this is an actual story that happened that Jesus is telling. Uh, 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple, fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, or hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you're tormented. Besides all this, between us and you there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here 
cannot, nor can those from here pass to us. All right. Realization sets into this man's life. He is aware of where he is, and he wants to be comforted, and he wants out. But the realization is he's there forever. Having that realization, what I find interesting, he's fully conscious of everything even to the point where he has five brothers. And he begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house where his five brothers were living. I have five brothers that they may, we would use the word witness to them, that they also do not come to this place of torment. I wonder if he ever thought about that in everyday life as he's just going around his living his life every day, worrying about hell, much less his brothers, whether they would go there or not. But he sure is now. He says, there's no way I'm getting out. How can I get a message to them? And he said, no, Father Abraham. And and then uh, Abraham said to him, no, they have the law in Moses. Let them hear them. What's he saying there? He's saying, no, They won't believe if they see a miracle. Lazarus, another Lazarus, was raised from the dead, and many of them didn't believe. So what is Abraham saying is the only way they can really get saved? And his answer is the book that you're holding in your hand. I have an honest question for you this morning, and I realize this is a rather straightforward Bible study, and it's meant to be, to be honest with you, because We have, in our country, way too many good things to keep us distracted. Amen? Get caught up in everyday things, and the last thing we're thinking about is, oh, my brother might go to hell. So I want to rattle cages this morning and let you know that um, this could be um, a time and a moment where you sit down and give yourself a good, good talking to I need to get my priorities straight. And if my priority is to make some sort of an attempt to witness to people who would, because of me, they may never go to this place. And so I wanted to make it a little graphic this morning to show you this place is real. I read one thing that um, um, a guy said, well, Jesus would, where'd you get that message on hell? Jesus would never say that. And he says, Jesus is where I got the whole message from. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else. And uh, I don't want to believe it like C.S. Lewis, but nonetheless, it's there. It's eternal, and there's no turning away back from it. Luke 16, uh, verse 31, goes on to say, um, Abraham, but if they, one goes... To them from the dead they will repent, but he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one be raised from the dead. I don't want to leave you on that heavy of a note, guys. So let's finish Acts 14. There's only four verses left. We are switching gears big time. We left off with verse 20. Let's finish the chapter out, 21 to 27, 28. So when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Uh, Put the map back up, please, as we close this off this morning. And after they had passed through Pisadia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Adelaide. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work which they had completed And when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 
So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Chapter 13 and 14 is Paul's, here it is on on the screen, uh, his missionary journey. Why was he compelled to do so? Because he knows the full gospel and both sides of it. Can I lovingly encourage you to, myself included, give my good, a good talking to myself? <laughs> and um, think about people that I love. The guy that you work next to, that you've never really warned about. Carry a gospel track with you. Like I, like, I like carrying around my God of Wonders. It's a powerful witnessing tool. You never know when you're going to run across a cop and you can give him one. And <laughs> tell him you appreciate what he's doing, doing for the community. Amen? Okay, let's stand and ask God's Holy Spirit to put this in our heart this morning. Lord, because we do teach chapter by chapter and verse by verse, there's no way I can dance around heaven and hell. And uh, this morning, Lord, as we consider your life after death experience and what you saw and the glory of it, we also read in Luke 16, a man who is there right now waiting for his day in court. And um, Lord, help us be bold. It says that Paul boldly got up and went back into that city. We need that boldness. We need to be less self-centered and actually really be concerned about where people are gonna spend their eternity. So I commit now your word, and I pray that your Holy Spirit and your word would not return void. And we thank you for the whole Bible, uh, all of it, um, and the simple, real truth that it holds. So go before us the rest of this day. We commit this all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.